In the 16th century, French communities were being plagued by a series of bizarre disappearances and brutal murders. The corpses often being horrifically mutilated, as though they'd been ripped apart by some sort of monstrous animal. Whatever it was that seemed to be tormenting the villages seemed to prefer the cover of night for its attacks. As the killings continued, villagers began to fear the night and the horror it would bring. Night was no longer safe, and the residents would hunker down in their small homes, stoking their fires and praying for the daylight's quick return. Those close to the woodlands often endured the longest and most fearful nights and would shiver as night after night the silence was pierced by screams and odd guttural growls. The deaths and horrifying sounds that went with them always seemed to occur when the moon was full, bathing the land in that eerie pale light. The villagers were all too keenly aware that there was a reason for this. They knew that the full moon and the light it gave was not only a signal, but one of the culprits for this gruesome monthly occurrence. It brought about a creature which generations had learned to fear, the werewolf. The only thing that made the occurrences all the more unsettling was that the villagers knew that the werewolf, which stalked about and killed during the nights, was one of them. It was, of course, next to impossible to tell who was actually the beast. And because of this, an air of mistrust began sweeping through the small villages. Rumors carried by whispers floated from house to house, and theories on who the culprit was and how they got that transformational power began to flourish. Eyes, of course, cast judgmental glances towards elderly widows whose wrinkles and other reminders of mortality made them an obvious target for those feelings of discomfort. Those who looked or acted different, or those who were poor and dressed in frayed and soiled clothes, were suspects as well. Though suspicion was high, they managed to avoid the brutal hysteria that often follows such cases. Instead, the villagers remained surprisingly level-headed and avoided the mass arrests and tortures that normally followed.
Eventually, suspicion fell on two drifters, Pierre Bergot and Michel Verdun. It seemed that whenever these two men made an appearance, so did the werewolf. The men were eventually followed, and when villagers and law officials made their way into the woods where the two men had set up camp, they made a startling and grisly discovery. Not only did they find dismembered bodies, but they found evidence that the two men had been eating the remains. Cannibalism, it was believed, was one of the signs or symptoms of being a werewolf. Borgo and Verdun were soon hunted down and arrested. While under arrest, the men confessed to not only being werewolves, but they also told a story of how they had obtained their transformational power. They claimed that they had made a pact with the devil, who had in return given them a potion which allowed them to transform into werewolves. For the people of the village, the tale these two men spun was perhaps just as horrifying as the actual murders and cannibalism they had committed. The men were sentenced to death and in 1521 were burnt at the stake. It was believed that fire was one of the few things which could kill a werewolf. It seems that they were indeed correct in that belief, as after burning Pierre and Michel, the killings in the area stopped. France wasn't the only European country during that 16th century time period to have been plagued by werewolves. Germany also had its fair share of werewolf encounters. By the late 16th century, Germany was experiencing a time of unrest, politically and religiously, and a large portion of the country had been upended. The Cologne War, a religious war fueled between Catholics and Protestants, had devastated a large portion of the country. The town of Bedburg was one of the many towns in that area which had taken quite a hit because of the war. The people were at odds with one another, gripped by fear, exhausted by stress. And it was the perfect setting for what was about to happen. Around 1585, 
prized livestock around the town were being found mutilated. Then, shortly after, townsfolk began disappearing. Now, some remained missing, but others were found off on the outskirts of town, their bodies seemingly torn apart. Rumors soon began, and soft-spoken stories of farmers spotting monstrous wolf-like creatures with unsettling human-like characteristics began making the rounds through the pubs and gatherings. Of course, the townsfolk knew exactly what this mysterious wolf-like creature was. There was a werewolf in their midst, and there seemed to be no stopping it. Its hunger seemed to increase with time, and it seemed that every other week, livestock or people were being killed. A few times, it was spotted and even frightened off. The brave witnesses claimed that the creature was a greedy and bloodthirsty beast whose large eyes sparkled and danced about in the torchlight. It was said that the beast's mouth could open twice as wide as a normal wolf, and its long, sharp teeth were unlike anything in nature. Because tensions had been high in the town well before these mysterious killings began, the response to what was happening around them rose to unhinged hysteria. Accusations and neighbors turning against one another became commonplace, as were mass arrests and torture. The townsfolk were desperate and afraid and seemed to stop at nothing to make those nightly terrors stop. However, no matter how many arrests were made, the killings kept happening. And soon, rumors spread that perhaps it wasn't just one werewolf, but many. The townsfolk became so afraid that curfews were put in place and traveling at night was only permitted when doing so within armed groups. Years went by with no end in sight. Many considered leaving town. They considered it abandoned by God. It seemed that nothing would be able to stop the werewolf. Then, just as despair was settling in, the beast was spotted one night by several townsfolk. Well, the men quickly gathered weapons 
and their hounds, and they set about tracking the beast. They tracked it for quite some time, until they came upon something rustling near some trees. The hounds were set loose, and they managed to close in on it. When they shone their torches on it, the men gasped. As they later told the authorities, they watched as the wolf-like creature slowly transformed into a man, who then collapsed sobbing onto the ground. The hunters quickly captured the man and drug him back into town. Well, as the townsfolk had long suspected, the werewolf was indeed one of their own. His name was Peter Stubbe, and he was a farmer who lived just outside of town. While Peter had mostly kept to himself and was friendly enough to strangers, he was also harboring a dark secret. While under arrest, Peter confessed to the killings and even claimed that he like the Frenchman mentioned earlier, had made a pact with the devil. At first, he only wanted material gain, but he eventually made a new pact in trade for a special power, one which would let him live out his savage fantasies. The devil gave him a magical belt made of a wolf pelt. This, when worn, allowed the man to transform into a wolf and satisfy his desire for blood. Well, he was immediately found guilty and was soon burnt at the stake. Peter's wife and daughter were soon arrested as well. They were tortured and eventually executed in the same fashion. They were punished for knowing about Peter's crimes and for not warning others. You see, one thing about Peter is that he not only tortured the townsfolk, he also tortured his wife and daughter. To get his daughter into complicit silence, he murdered her younger brother and made her watch as he devoured the boy's brains. Because, like the Frenchman before, Peter was also a cannibal. Behind every haunting legend, if you are willing to dig deep enough, you will discover that there is some sliver of truth behind it. A real-life happening which inspired and made for the foundation of a good and often 
frightening tale of the supernatural. The legend of the werewolf, as we know it today, was fueled by those mysterious murders which happened during the 16th century. Acts which were so brutal and animalistic in nature that their only plausible explanation at the time was the supernatural. It was far easier to believe that these murders were brought about by sinister, dark, magical forces rather than the free will of a demented mind. The legend of modern-day werewolves came about as a way to explain what was going on, a way to explain serial killers. For many areas, wolves were seen as primal, scary hunters of the night. But wolves were also known, at times, to go mad. They were known to venture into villages, throffing at the mouth, attacking and biting animals and people alike, seemingly with no fear. Those who had been bitten would soon display those same behaviors, seemingly turning into that which had attacked them. The stories of werewolves, which we know today, mostly date back to the 15th and 16th centuries. But stories of humans transforming into wolves goes much further back. It is a theme which pops up in ancient stories, mythologies, and legends time and time again. It's a theme that is almost as old as history itself. It spans countries and cultures and is almost an oddly universal theme. Perhaps an example of how widespread trade truly was during ancient times. People not only traded goods during their trading encounters, they traded stories as well. Many believe that the first recorded appearance of werewolves goes back to one of the oldest known written texts, the Epic of Gilgamesh. In this part of the story, Ishtar, the sultry goddess of love and war, falls in love with Gilgamesh. However, Gilgamesh rejects her advances, as Ishtar had a bit of a reputation when it came to relationships. When the goddess grew bored of the affections of her suitors, she would punish them if they did not immediately retreat. Her punishments were often brutal and could be deadly. Such 
as the case of the young shepherd. The shepherd had fallen madly in love with Ishtar and devoted himself to the goddess. He would make frequent treks to her mountainside shrine, each time spreading before it lavish offerings. Well, Ishtar soon began taking notice of this young man who so dutifully showered her with gifts. And for a while, she enjoyed and encouraged his affections. But eventually, she grew bored of the young man, maybe even feeling a little smothered. She ordered him to leave her alone, banning him from her shrine. But the young shepherd would not be written off so easily. When he refused to give up on the woman he so dearly loved, Ishtar, became angry and transformed him into a wolf. As the wolf man, obviously shocked over his current circumstance, began to run away, he was stopped by his own hounds. The dogs, unaware that this lone wolf was their master, tore after it, seeing it as a threat. The nimble hounds attacked the confused shepherd and tore him apart. This story of Ishtar essentially cursing a man and turning him into a wolf is often credited as being the very first instance of a werewolf and what perhaps fueled later tales. Ever since, werewolves, in some fashion, have had a way of popping up in myths and legends. In Greek mythology, the association with werewolves and curses appear yet again in the tale of Lycaon. Lycaon was the king of Arcadia and was known throughout the realm for his arrogance, cruelty, and greed. He had many wives and many children and viewed both as a sign of his importance and wealth. His daughters were known for their beauty and because of this, they were extremely valuable to him. They were key in his efforts to secure trade and alliances with other kingdoms. It was said that the most beautiful and prized daughter was Callisto. Callisto was not only incredibly beautiful, but she was also intelligent and a skilled huntress. Even the gods and goddesses took notice of her beauty and strength, and she soon gained the attention of Artemis. 
Artemis, impressed with Callisto's hunting skills, wanted her to join her and be one of her hunting companions. Well, Callisto excitedly agreed. But there was one condition to having such an immense honor. She had to remain loyal to Artemis and forfeit any male companionship, something which Callisto happily agreed to. But unfortunately for her, she soon caught the eye of another deity, Zeus. Zeus, being the selfish type he was, disguised himself one day as Artemis, and then, after gaining Callisto's trust, had his way with her. Unfortunately for Callisto, she became pregnant with Zeus's child. And upon discovery of this, Artemis cast her out of the hunting group. To make matters even worse, Hera, Zeus's wife, soon found out about the incident and in a fit of jealous rage, transformed the poor girl into a bear. Now in early versions of this story, Hera then persuaded Artemis to hunt down and kill Callisto. But Zeus, feeling pity for the girl, intervened and he placed her and her child up into the stars to keep them safe. With the tragedy surrounding the loss of his most valuable daughter, Lycaon's hatred of Zeus grew by the day, and he vowed to make the god pay for what he had done. Lycaon soon devised a plan to lure the god-king down to Arcadia so he could exact his revenge. One day, Zeus overheard a rumor that was supposedly reporting his true and unholy age. Worried about this report, Zeus decided to take human form and visit the place this rumor had originated from. After walking about Arcadia and investigating the rumor further, Zeus decided to put an end to it once and for all, and he revealed himself as a god to the people. Well, immediately, those in the streets dropped to their knees and worshipped him. However, there was one person which did not. The king of Arcadia. Instead of kneeling, he mocked the actions of his subjects and said that an experiment should be performed in order to prove if the being before them was truly a god or just a clever mortal. However, the king knew that the being before him was Zeus, and the experiment was just a clever way to disguise his true plan to kill Zeus. 
Lycaon invited Zeus to his palace, telling him they would dine, and then he would be granted the opportunity to prove himself a god. But of course, Lycaon had other plans. First, he would weaken the god, making him fall into a deep slumber. Then while he slept, Lycaon would kill him. The only way to weaken the god and put him into such a catatonic state was to trick him into eating human flesh. As Zeus was being entertained in the palace, and as he awaited dinner, Lycaon crept off and began putting his plan into motion. He killed one of the prisoners he had been holding, and then threw their butchered limbs into a pot of boiling water to tenderize the meat. Then they were roasted over the fire until they were fully cooked. Lycaon then instructed the servants to begin setting the table. As he returned to the dining hall and set himself down at the table, Zeus could sense he was up to something. When the meal was served and Zeus saw what was on the plate before him, he knew exactly what was going on. Enraged, Zeus destroyed the grand palace with a mighty thunderbolt and then set a curse upon Lycaon, transforming him into a horrendous, wolf-like creature. The creature the king became was a bloodthirsty beast with an insatiable hunger. It soon turned on its own people, stalking about the night, tearing to shreds all it encountered. Its hunger never satisfied. It's from these early tales where the association with cannibalism and werewolves really comes into play. But it wasn't until around 61 CE that the story of werewolves began to take shape into the legend that we are familiar with today. In 61 CE, a scribe for the Roman Emperor Nero began compiling a collection of stories known as a satyricon. The scribe's name was Petronius, and his favorite style was presenting philosophical ideas via humor. In this collection, there is a particularly weird story about a Roman soldier named Niceros. Niceros travels to a distant city with another man. 
Now, these two men, who were nothing more than acquaintances, really, found themselves traveling to a mutual destination. So rather than go it alone, the two men decided to make the journey together for reasons both of safety and companionship. Well, after traveling for quite some time, bladders became full, and Niceros and his acquaintance were both in need of a rather urgent bathroom break. So they began looking for some area to stop, because, you know, they didn't want to be the rude guys who pee in the middle of the road. Well, eventually, they scout out a cemetery off in the distance, which, for some reason or another, seemed like the perfect place to pee. So while they're doing their thing, Niceros is suddenly horrified when his acquaintance, out of nowhere, begins letting out this really strange, unsettling laugh. And if laughing while peeing wasn't bad enough, the man then begins to start spinning around in a circle while still peeing. And afterwards, the man stops, tears off his clothes, howls, and then transforms into a wolf. Then, the wolfy weirdo then runs at full speed out of the cemetery and towards a nearby town. Oniseros, not sure which part of this whole scenario disturbed him more, is left standing there in shock. After a few moments, he finally comes to his senses and begins trying to make sense of what just happened. As he's walking over to where the man discarded his clothes, Niceros is shocked to see that the clothes are turning into stone. Weird. At this point, poor Niceros, he needs a drink, and he begins numbly making his way towards that very town that his four-legged friend trotted off to. When he finally makes it into town that evening, he overhears a woman at the pub talking about this strange wolf that had terrorized her farm. Well, intrigued, Nisero asked the woman when this all happened, and she told him it had been a few hours before, around the same time that his road trip took a turn for the weird. Niceros asked the woman if she knew what became of the wolf. And she told him that one of her servants had snuck up behind it and speared it in the throat, killing it shortly after it arrived. Niceros determined that was probably why the discarded clothes turned to stone. Thank you.
And thus ends the strange tale of Niceros. But this tale is the first time where a person transforms into a wolf seemingly on their own. It's the first example of a werewolf as we know it today. And it's also another example of how curses are associated with werewolves. Part of the lesson that the author was trying to teach with that story was that you needed to respect the dead. Otherwise, the dead could curse you and get revenge. Since the tale of Niceros, there have been numerous werewolf legends, and even legends to describe how these creatures come to be. There are all sorts of ways in which a person can become a werewolf. And many of those ways played on superstitions of the time. A person can become a werewolf if they were born during the full moon, which was considered, even today, kind of a strange time. You could become a werewolf by being born on a Friday. Throughout many times in history, Fridays just in general were seen as an unlucky day. Now, most commonly, one could become a werewolf by making some sort of pact with the devil or some other nefarious dark force. It was not only the reason for the pact, but sometimes it was the punishment as well. You could be a werewolf because you were bitten by another werewolf. In some stories, the people find this magical wolf pelt and when they put it on, they become a werewolf. But the pelt carries that curse. And each night, the person is cursed to become a werewolf. And weirdly enough, sometimes a person can become a werewolf by unwittingly drinking rainwater from the footprint of one. And I'm really... Not sure how that one really comes into play. You know, maybe they're really heavy and they make big puddles, but that's kind of a weird one. But there are all sorts of ways that werewolves can happen, and they all center around some basic superstitions. You know, fear of the night, fear of the full moon, the making the pact with the devil or nefarious force, and even that fear of Friday. It all centers around some of those common superstitions that came really from medieval times. Now, of course, there are ways to kill a werewolf. In older times, pretty much the only way to kill one was by burning it to death while it was in human form. But then later on comes the method of silver. And... I'm not sure exactly how the whole silver thing got started in folklore, but I do know 
that silver has all sorts of superstitious properties, which could relate to why it's kind of a good tool to battle a werewolf with. Silver was often seen to be the metal of good. In ancient times, medieval times, they actually ingested silver as a form of medicine. They thought it had what we would call today sort of antibiotic properties. So silver was used as a weapon against evil because it was believed to have medicinal properties. Back in those days, they thought ingesting silver meant getting rid of the bad spirits that were making you sick. Therefore, silver got rid of the bad things. Now, silver also blackens when coming in contact with sulfur. And since werewolves often got their powers by making packs with the devil, silver was a good way to detect a werewolf or other evil forces. So mainly, they were using silver to try to locate, say, a demonic force. When you came near it, the silver would start to blacken because it was coming in contact with sulfur. Because they believed that werewolves got their powers from the devil, it was believed that because of this, if silver got into a werewolf's bloodstream, it would somehow or another kind of cancel out the sulfur. They'd like cancel each other out and boop, it would kill the werewolf. Now, silver has also long since been associated with the moon. And since werewolves became associated with the full moon, it made sense to someone out there that silver would be a good metal to stab them or shoot them with, I guess. I want to thank you for listening to this episode and hope you enjoyed this little jaunt into werewolf folklore. If you enjoy this episode, you can find more on our website, nighttideradio.com. That's N-I-G-H-T-T-I-D-E radio.com. You can also follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, and many of your favorite little podcasty places. <laughs>